Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we have conversations about pop culture, parenting, and identity politics, all from a multicultural perspective. I'm your host, Lori Tharps. I'm an author, a journalist, and a mother of three, and an all-around diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here because this is a very special episode. Let's call this the bonus episode of season one of the podcast. You see, I was really proud when we completed our first season of My American Melting Pot. I thought we did a great job coming up with timely topics, knowledgeable guests, and let's be honest, a great theme song. But one thing I realized I didn't do was introduce myself. Sure, you all know that I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and a diversity diva, but there's more to my story than that, particularly my melting pot story. As you tune into this show every other week, I want you to know a little bit more about how I came to be diversity's biggest fan, why I view the world through a multicultural lens, and how my love affair with Spain began. Did you know I had a love affair with Spain? Probably not. That's why I wanted to do this bonus episode, to help you get to know the voice behind the microphone a little bit better. As luck would have it, in 2017, my husband and I were interviewed for a wonderful podcast series called The Loving Project. So rather than reading you my life story or interviewing myself, I figured I could share our episode of The Loving Project. Thank you to The Loving Project producers Brad Linder and Farah Parks for letting me do just that. This is The Loving Project, a podcast celebrating the 50th anniversary of Loving v. Virginia by featuring stories of interracial married couples five decades after the Supreme Court decision that overturned state laws banning marriage between people of different races. In this episode, we hear from Lori and Manuel. Lori is black and grew up in Wisconsin. Manuel is white and Spanish. They met in Spain while Lori was studying abroad and eventually moved together to New York and then to Philadelphia, where we interviewed them for this episode of The Loving Project. My name is Manuel. I am white from Spain. My name is Lori, and I am black. And we've been married since 1999, and we have three children. Uh, We have two boys, ages 15 and 12, and a daughter who's five. We met in uh, Spain, in Salamanca, in uh, this is the University of Salamanca, in German class. Yeah, I was there for my junior year of college. And I saw Manuel in my class, and I thought he was really cute. She followed me. I did. I started stalking him. And I was too embarrassed to, like, actually say anything. So I literally just kind of tried to follow him around. Finally, we started chatting in class, and eventually I invited him over for dinner. I cooked a meal, this vegetarian meal, because I was a vegetarian out of poverty because I couldn't afford meat. The lentils? Yeah, I made lentils. That's what they were good. Yeah, but he still said that the meal would have been better with a pork chop. And it was a nice dinner, I remember. Thank Those you. lentils. For not having meat, they were great. <laughs> and, and from then on, we just kept, you know, talking, hanging out. I have been obsessed with Spain since I was in the fifth grade. My experience up until college had always been the black girl who, or she's that black girl, or there's because I was the only one. So in everything I did, I was a swimmer. So it's like, there's that black girl in the pool, you know, and the one on the team, that one, and that one in the class. And studying Spanish seemed to be this one place where I was exposed to this other world. And I felt it wasn't based on any reality, but I think I just, in my mind, conflated this idea of foreign with different and maybe that I would go there and and it would be different than being this other 
in my own country. But in Spain, conformity is a big part of the culture. And anything that does not conform to traditional Spanish culture is othered and very publicly. So I couldn't walk down the street anywhere, whether it's a big city or a small town, without being called out, Negrita, Morena. I mean, I was like, okay, this is the antithesis of what I wanted. I wanted to be free to be myself. And yet everywhere I went, it was, look at the black girl. In Spanish. Um, it didn't sound better in Spanish. And what I really wanted to do was to fit into this culture that I had romanticized for all these years. And they, I couldn't. There was no way. I was not allowed to be Spanish. You know, and my friends who were blonde had the same experience too. You know, it was like Rubia, like anybody who was different. I mean, it wasn't just blackness. It was any difference. And so by the end of the academic year, it was like, I'll probably not need to come back to Spain, except that I met this charming man. Like Laurie said, you know, when they would say, oh, Morena, it wasn't malicious, but it's like, wow, this is, you know, we're not used to this. So definitely we would be, look, look, you know, we're looked at. It didn't bother me because I knew, I think I knew where, you know, this looks came from. I'm like, okay, you know, you know, the new show in town. Okay. <laughs> parts about Spanish culture that I loved. I mean, I loved my life there. I loved the lifestyle there. I loved the food. I decided to be a writer while I was in Spain because there's definitely this sense of finding your passion and people living for their passions as opposed to, you know, your work. And so there's there was a lot about Spain that I loved. And I what I found distasteful was not Spain. It's just me in Spain. So individual people were wonderful. And I think one of the reasons that I was so taken with Manuel was because he didn't have a preconceived notion about what blackness was or what I was supposed to be. And he was so interested in me as a human and the parts about me that were black, that was just something to inform himself about. It wasn't like I had to get past his racist attitudes or ideas or anything like that. So he was probably the first person that made me feel proud of having dark skin because he thought it was beautiful. He was a person who saw me for who I was and didn't have any kind of baggage that maybe a white American would have. Like, I didn't feel like I had to second guess what he was thinking about me. I mean, we have our own prejudices, don't get me wrong. You know, I think our culture is very racist, but not against black people because she was a black American. You know, I hadn't, I didn't have any special, you know, issues with that because our issues are with gypsies or North Africans. If you're like a black American, you know, you come to Spain with, you are from the U.S. It's different. And I've always been attracted to, I'm a curious person. I like to learn like other culture, everything. And uh, because she was a foreigner and to me that's like a, you open a window to another culture. You could open a door. And I've always been attracted to meeting people from other countries. So that in itself was like a very attractive. Plus, she's very pretty. And, you know, we talked and talking to her was so cool. So that's how the whole thing started, just chatting and hanging out. But again, being from Spain, like I realized I didn't have any preconceptions about her. If it had been at the time, like maybe like a gypsy woman, I would have wanted to meet her, but I would have something in there that my culture fed me, especially if I'm 20. You know, I don't, I don't think I would have the tools to really undo or, or to fight, you know, whatever preconceptions. Mm-hmm. 
bringing Lori to my family, I was okay because I knew that my immediate family would be okay, basically my parents and my siblings. And anything beyond that, I, re I really didn't care. But my father was like, I don't know if Lori should meet my own mother, meaning, you know, my grandmother, my father's mother. And I said that to Lori, it's like, Lori's like, well, Lori has been through a lot of wars. She's like, I want to meet her now. <laughs> like, I'm like, I don't know. Lori's like, are you kidding me? I want to meet her. Who is this woman? So I actually didn't meet Manuel's grandmother until after our first child was born. His um, maternal grandparents I met right away, and they were so sweet and so kind, but like the first thing his grandfather told me was like total racist joke, but the, like the punchline was like about Asians, and I was like, do I laugh? Like, um, at least it's not about me. Okay, we'll start here. But that's like what Spain, like Spain is so unaware of their own racism, like and their own like inappropriateness. So that was just funny, sad, but funny. But they were lovely to me. And so we didn't meet the other grandmother until my son was born. Needless to say, I had no idea the woman lived next door to them. It wasn't like they would have had to take me hindering yeah, really. to meet her. She lived on the other side of their apartment. They shared a wall with the grandmother's house. I had no idea. I mean, I was there every summer. I was going there for seven years and never met this woman until our child was born. And it was about the child. And I was like, you know, I made sure my baby looked good. You know, he was clean and I was clean. And we went to her house next door, <laughs> which I found like, seriously, all this time, she's right there. I probably walked by her window like a million times. And they were like, yeah. So she knows what you look like. She knows who you are. And I've never met her. So we sit, we have tea. And at this point, this woman is quite feeble. She's talking, but you know, very weakened voice. She had to be at least in her early 90s at that time. Yeah. So yeah. I was just, you know, on my best behavior. And um, she gave us money for Isai for the baby, uh, you know, for his savings account or whatever. And I was like, oh, that was so wonderful. And so we came back and Manuel's mother asked, you know, how did the visit go? She was so nervous. And I was like, it was fine. You guys had nothing to worry about. She was perfectly lovely. And then I think Manuel's version. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, she didn't realize, but my grandmother completely ignored Lori. Didn't talk to her, didn't look at her. She did most of the talking to me. I acknowledged the baby. And I'm looking at the whole scene. I'm like, I'm not going off on this woman because she's 90 and she's my grandmother. I was ready to kill her, my grandmother, <laughs> my own grandmother. She's not even acknowledging. And I remember, she was senile. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Because she, this woman died when she was like 96 and her mind was sharp until the day she died. Her body was feeble, but her mind, smart lady. So when we were hanging out, I don't know, we were hanging out for maybe one or two hours, you know. But I'm kind of watching the whole scene unfold. And Lori's very relaxed, you know. My grandmother's doing most of the talking to me and something about the baby. And Lori's politely saying things. But I'm like, I cannot believe this. Like, she's completely ignoring her. And then we left. And when we relayed the whole experience to my family, <laughs> But it was like, oh, it was so nice. I'm like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> it was evil. <laughs> when you think Wisconsin, most people think like 
white, snow, cheese. cold, cheese, beer. Like, there, it was not a very diverse environment. I went to a private school where I was the only black female in my graduating class and one of three black students in total. And basically, my whole method of being black was to be, like, the undercover black person, from my hair to my speech to, like, everything about me. I remember certain hairstyles, like just keeping my hair in a ponytail, like not wanting anything that would look really black. I was never ashamed of being black. I was never that person who wanted to be white. But that first period of my life was really about fitting in. And towards the end of my high school career, I realized I had failed. There were moments that were uncomfortable that people reminded me that they saw me as black. And that blackness wasn't... um, it wasn't neutral. So by senior year, I was basically realizing that I could not hide my blackness and that people saw me no matter what. So I was mad at them, not mad at me. I went to college and decided I was not going to be friends with any white people. That was going to be my thing. I was going to really explore my black identity. But I went to Smith College, which is just in the middle of Northwestern Massachusetts, So that was not a well-thought-out plan. Most of my friends at Smith were Asian, so I was getting closer. I had black friends, but I had some white friends, too. I just didn't work the way I thought it was going to. It wasn't until I moved to uh, New York, when I moved to Brooklyn, and I worked at Vibe magazine where I had my, like, black experience. And it was so refreshing to find black people like me. It was a revelation to me that blackness had multiple options. It's like, what? There were black people who, you know, were really into punk and there were black people who were into hip hop and there were black people who were vegetarians and there were black people who had gone to private school. It truly was a revelation. Whatever your black is, is black. There isn't a single black narrative, which is what I've dedicated my writing life to be about, you know, is to expand the notion of blackness in America, particularly. We had to travel back and forth for a couple of years because I had to finish college. And after that, you know, that's when I moved to New York. I'm a small town guy and I'm moving to New York. So I come from a small, homogeneous, close-minded, backwards community. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, and then I come into New York, which is the complete opposite. Finding diversity, a huge place, a subway that stunk in the summertime, <laughs> full of rats. But everything was a shock. And all kinds of restaurants, all kinds of people. And I loved it. I, I love that. And because I like, I like to learn and I'm curious and I consider myself to be, for the most part, open-minded. It opened my eyes in ways that, you know. But it, it was a shock, definitely. As far as like our day-to-day, like walking around New York with a white partner, I remember a few times where we'd be walking and like some crazy black homeless person would like holler at us, you know, you think you spat on us. Right. That's what it was. I don't know if it was a man or a woman, but that person mumbled something. It spat on us. Yeah. But these were infrequent. But I do remember a few times checking my own discomfort, having a white partner in the midst of my woo, I work at Vibe and, you know, black, black, blackity, black, black, black. Um, But I think if he had been a white American, I still say I would never be with a white American. Like there just would be too much that I could not get over. I don't know if that's true, but he's not tainted in my mind with that history. 
I think that's how I was able to move through that part of my pro-Black identity. I hadn't been that long in this country, and I, I wasn't even fully aware of all the dynamics that are going on. And Lori, on the phone, she had found this apartment for us to move. Brooklyn Heights, you know, near where I used to teach. Nice place. And, you know, in hindsight, I know what she sounds like on the phone. White. Yeah. Or at least not black. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. So she got this apartment and she told me, you know, everything's arranged because you did everything. So the next day we went, we were ready. All we had to do was go, you know, pay whatever the deposit or whatever and pick up the keys and we had an apartment. And for some reason, Lori was walking ahead of me. I think we were looking for the address. So she was ahead of me and then she's like, oh, it's here. And there's these glass doors, you know. So Lori's like kind of knocking on the door. And then, you know, this white woman is like through the door. It's like, what do you want? And I see Lori, you know, hey, we're coming for the kiss. And she's talking to her. And this woman keeps talking to her through the door. And it is not opening the door to her. And I'm like, that is weird. Then I'm there. I make it there. You know, she clarifies the situation. We go in. Then Lori explained, you know, hey, we're here to pick up the keys for apartment so-and-so. We had the deposit. And the man who was behind the desk, oh, God, what is your name? Oh, yeah, okay, okay. This is the apartment. Okay. He left and then he came back and he was like, you know, that apartment, there's a problem. It's been taken. And, you know, he made that some BS excuse. But the point is that when he saw, I guess, her, you know, that apartment was no longer available. So, you know, I think the whole thing was weird from the beginning, you know, not opening the door to her. Yeah, um, I barely remember that. and you know, it's, I do it, remember. <laughs> he remembers it so I clearly. It was just shocking to me from the beginning, like, open the door to her. You know, she's talking, you know, she clearly is trying to come in. And the one would not open the door, just talking through the glass door. That was killing me. As a black woman, I think it wasn't the shock. I mean, I can imagine if you have never been treated that way. It's got to be, it's mind-blowing. Uh, yeah, I never witnessed anything like that. Not that things like that don't happen in Spain with maybe a gypsy would have been maybe the same thing. But I haven't seen that. And it really, it drove me insane. Like, that's how rude and crazy is that? And I realized how the dynamics, I just saw it. I'm like, oh, white woman, black woman. I mean, I get it. But it was so blatant, like, out there, you know? People with different skin colors are going to have different experiences in life. Even siblings, you know, if you have a different skin color, you're going to be treated in certain ways. I used to take the children to this dry cleaner not far from here. And the owner is this Korean lady. And I used to take Isai and Adai. And Isai has a little browner than Adai. And I would take the two of them. And, you know, the first time this lady, oh, your children. And then she would start going all over Adai, the second one, who's lighter. He's so beautiful, talking to him, giving him candy. And I'm like thinking, what about this other child? And, you know, the next time, you know, I go back and it's the same thing again. And it started bothering me because, you know, and my thinking was like, I have this other child who's witnessing. That was kind of what was bothering me. Like, how is my browner kid going to feel if this keeps happening? 
But at the time he was so young, I don't think he was, you know, he was like five or something. He was so young. But it was bothering me so much that I'm like, I almost confronted the woman, but I said, I'll just take my business somewhere else. And then I stopped going and I went to the next, you know, dry cleaners and this this couple, you know, they were so nice to both. I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is okay. There is the challenge, and, and we've been talking about this recently, of, you know, their identities. I erroneously thought that I could just raise them the way I was raised, that they'll just be black. And not, not even thinking about it. Like, it wasn't a conscious, like, I will raise them as black children. It was just, you know, they'll learn what I learned in, in terms of identity, and they'll be so ready for that black, you know, the thing that I had to go through. They don't have to deal with that because I'm so much more self-actualized as a black woman. Uh-oh, they're not black. I mean... First, because two of them look rather not black, but they are also Spanish. And so that whole realization that there is a mixed identity, I had to go back, start over again with how do you raise confident mixed children who are not just black and white American, but they have two unique cultural backgrounds. And then, of course, the fact that they are different colors as well brings the challenge of because we live in such a racist society, you're going to experience the world this way, and you're going to experience the world this way, and you're going to experience the world this way. That's like three different parenting manuals. So that's definitely been something that we could never have planned on. We really thought we were going to have kids that looked Puerto Rican. You know, we just assumed Black, Spanish. Why wouldn't they just be some kind of beigey, brownish, curly-haired? And that's not what we got. I think for me personally, the best thing is that my children are bilingual. For someone who fell in love with language very early, um, but struggled, you know, how you conjugate, you know, it's so lovely. Manuel only speaks to our children in Spanish. And so they really have that ability, not to mention just having a real connection to another country. That's something we both love foreign cultures and learning about different countries and cultures and um, traveling. And so our children have had this you know, Isai was in our eldest, you know, he came to Spain with us twice a year sometimes. So they experienced the world in ways that we never did until we were adults. And they've had this experience as children. And I'm, I'm so grateful that they can experience themselves in different languages. I like the, the idea that uh, at home, you know, we can eat whatever American food Lori will cook, which is wonderful, by the way. Or some of, you know, like I will make this gazpacho or these tortillas, these Spanish omelets. You know, there's a few things that I can make, uh, arroz con pollo, that they will eat. And one of the reasons why I like that so much, not only because it's so tasty, <laughs> but also, like, when we go to Spain, they're going to eat that a lot. And they're not going to feel, you know, they're eating this new food they've never eaten. So there's a connection. They go there and they don't feel foreigners because they already are familiar with this food. Like when they were really young, you know, they ate caracoles like snails. In the South, we eat these little snails, so tasty to die for. And I know any kid might be freaked out by that, understandably so. But <laughs> but because they did it from day one and they saw me and it's something normal, I, when I stop and think about it, it amazes me. I'm like, my children are okay with the th- Not only are okay, they like snails. It's funny, like my children from like babies eat green olives. 
which is strange. Like that's such a harsh flavor. I mean, for a baby, right? But each one of them individually has they, love they olives. all that love so cool. olives to the point where the middle child he was like one and a half we went to spain and he was throwing up the night before we were supposed to come back to the states and i was like oh my god he's got a stomach bug this is going to be awful and then it turned out everybody had given the child olives because he loved them so much he would be like asking everybody for olives and he just got so many he oh my goodness and i remember like it wasn't until my junior year of college that I hated green olives. Like you couldn't make me eat them. But after spending a year in Spain, you grow to appreciate the olive. And my children all love green olives, which is so perfect. Because if you're in Spain and you don't eat olives, that's oh, no, just, you, that's, that's that, just. If you're in olives, you're weird. But actually, before you just said that, I never thought about it being that pathway so that when they get to Spain, that they're comfortable there. I do it like the opposite. I want to bring as much Spanish culture here since we're here more than there. But I mean, I clearly want that to be kind of them comfortable with it, but I never thought about it like working in reverse. And and like our daughter has not been to Spain yet, but she eats hamon. You know, she eats all of these things that again she I might as well have been there. I, I feel know like she's been there. So there you have it. That's my story. Maybe not my whole story, but now you know a little bit more about me and my husband Manuel who, by the way, I always refer to as El Esposo on the My American Melting Pot blog. My children are now 17, 14, and 7, and we are actually going to Spain as a family of five for the first time ever this summer. Our plan is to take our kids to Salamanca to show them where their parents first met before we head south to visit with Manuel's family. I'm really excited, and I'm actually going to be doing a couple of episodes of the podcast from Spain, so stay tuned for those. In the meantime, if you haven't had a chance to listen to all eight episodes of season one, get caught up because season two is going to launch on April 5th. And if you'd like to listen to more wonderful stories of interracial marriages, please check out the rest of the Loving Project series. You won't be disappointed. The Loving Project is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else you find podcasts. You can also visit the Loving Project website at lovingproject.com. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of My American Melting Pot. You can find links for the Loving Project website and podcast, as well as to my memoir, Kinky Gaspacho, Life, Love, and Spain, in the show notes for this episode, which appear on the My American Melting Pot blog. Don't forget, while you're waiting for season two of the podcast to launch, you can always get fresh new Melting Pot content on MyAmericanMeltingPot.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I post new things on the blog every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. This episode was recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia. Our editor and producer is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Joe Patty, Tyler McClure, and Paul Marchesani. Our PR and marketing guru is Darian Muka. And our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you for listening to My American Melting Pot. And remember to always live your life in color. (laughs) 